Hello, good afternoon. This is Lori Morose, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the current issues of the Niagara Gazette on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Again, good afternoon. My name is Lori Morose, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the current issues of the Niagara Gazette on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Our first article is a U.S. surgeon has declared it an American epidemic, written by Ted Anthony. The title is A Lonely Nation Has Notion of the American Way Promoted Isolation. The New York In New York, at the end of the searchers, one of the John Wayne's most renowned westerns, a kidnapped girl has been rescued and a family reunited. As the closing music swells, Wayne's character looks around at his kin, people who have other people to lean on, and then walks off toward the dusty West Texas horizon, lonesome and alone. It's a classic example of fundamental American tall tale that a nation built on notions of individualism, a male-dominated story filled with loners and rugged individualists who suck it up, do what needs to be done, ride off into the sunset, and like it that way. In reality, loneliness in America can be deadly. This month, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy declared it an American epidem- epidemic, saying that it takes as it takes as deadly as a toll as smoking upon the population of the United States. Millions of people in America are struggling in the shadows, he said, and that's not right. He cited some potent forces, the gradual withering of long-standing institutions, decreased engagement with, hold that thought, decreased engagement with churches, the fraying bonds of extended families. When you add recent stressors, the rise of social media and virtual life, post 9-11 popularization, and the way COVID interrupted existence. The challenge becomes even more stark. People are lonely the world people are lonely the world over. But as far back as the early nineteenth century, when the word loneliness began to be used in its current contents in American life, some were already asking the question Do the contours of American society that emphasize on individualism that's spreading throughout impurity over a vast, sometimes oversized landscape encourage isolation and alienation? Or is it like other chunks of the American story, a premise built on myths? Alexis de Corteville, watching the country as an outsider while writing Democracy in America in the mid-1800s, wondered whether, as social conditions become more equal, Americans and people like them would be included to reject the trappings of deep community that had pervaded old-world aristocrats from centuries. They acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standalone, and they are apt, apt to ima- imagine that their whole destiny in their have hold the whole destiny in their own hands. He wrote, "Thus, not only does democracy make every man forget his ancestors, but it throws him back forever upon himself alone." and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. This has been a reoccurring thread in how Americans perceive themselves. In the age before democracy, for better or for worse, people weren't lonely. 
They were tied up in a web of connections, and in many countries, that's more true than it was in the United States, says Colin Woodward, director of the Nation, Nationhood Lab at the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy. There's this idea that going out into those vast spaces and connecting with the wilderness and escaping the past was precisely what made us Americans, Woodward says. Yet many frontier myths skip over how important community has been in the settling and growing of the nation. Some of the biggest stories of co cooperation, the rise of municipal organizations and trade unions, the New Deal programs that helped drag many Americans out of the Depression in the 1930s, war efforts from the Civil War to World War II, sometimes gets lost in the fervor for character-driven stories of individualism. Those omissions continue, fueled in part by the pandemic distrust, distrust, a latter-day strain of individual over community sentiment over paired and innovations of liberty and freedom, occupies a significant chunk of the nation conversation these days, national conversation these days, to the point where advocacy about community thinking is sometimes met with accusations of socialism. Let's not consign Americans to be the hearers of a built-in loneliness gene, though. A new generation is insisting that mental health be part of the nation, national conversation, and many voices among them, women and people of color, are increasingly offering new alternatives to the old myths. What's more, the very place where the discussions about loneliness is being held today, in the office of the Surgeon General, a presidential appointee, suggested that other paths are possible. Our next article would be affordable homes hard to come by. Families and lower middle classes increasingly priced out. Written by Eric Chijanto. Excuse me, have I butchered that name? Chijanto. Mortgage payments on the homes sold at the median price across the U.S. have nearly tripled over the past decade. The growth of median salaries hasn't approached that pace. There are fewer homes for sale nationally. And those lists on the market are more expensive than ever. Middle-class Americans, particularly on the lower end, are finding themselves priced out and priced out of housing markets for single-family homes. Households earning median, median incomes or less could afford just one in five real estate listings by the close of 2022, according to analysts from the Urban Institute of Washington, D.C.-based think tank. This is a huge decline. In 2016, those same households hold it, flipping the page, could afford roughly half of the homes that were listed, says Emily Zinn, a research assistant with Urban Institute Housing Finance Policy Center. Over the past month, reporters from CNHI News nationwide had sought in the examine had sought to examine the issues surrounding affordable housing. Who is most impacted by the lack of it? and whose solution states the communities have implemented in the multi-part special report. The National Association of Realtors, Real, Realtors found that there are just one listing considerable, considered affordable for every 65 households, earning $75,000 to $100,000 annually in 2021, down from 1 in 24 in 2019. 
The median sales price of the homes in the fourth quarter of 2012 was $251,700, according to the data in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, at the approximate 18% average down payment as reported by the real estate firm Redfine and 3.34% interest rate at the time. The monthly mortgage for a 30-year fixed loan was roughly $908. Such payments shot in 2000 shot to $2,630 by the close, wow, of 2022, when the median sales price was hit $467,700 down payment surge sunk 10%, and interest rates stood nearly double, 6.39%, the end result at a 44.6 increase in the monthly bill in 10 years, wow, tough on middle income earners. Doubling the current average down payment likely would help affordability for middle-income earners in the scenario above, according to Nagiva Evgor, Senior Economics and Director of the Real Estate. A middle-class income still can't afford to buy, Evgor said. Of course, it's a local issue. There are some areas where affordable affordability is better than others. Census Bureau data shows the median income in 2012 was $60,000 compared to $70,000 last year. Housing markets indicator study by the U.S. Housing and Urban Development show affordability exists among median income earners, and that as of February, those considered in middle-income housing households earned just enough to qualify for a 30-year fixed loan, but the affordability index stood about 30 points below historic norms. Those who own homes are, a serious, are at a serious advantage in terms of building wealth and cashing in on the current market. National Association of Realtors, Realtors calculations found that low-income house owners built $98,000 in wealth since 2012 from home price appreciation alone. Middle and upper-income owners 122000 to 150000 on average. That wealth ac- accumulation is reflective in part of, of demand. Month-to-month, sales of existing new homes in early 2023 were up, but well below year-over-year returns. According to data studied by HUD, the overall inventory of new and existing homes did climb in February, but the lack of housing stock is still in the extremes. The home buying website, Realtor.com, estimates the country is short on single-family homes by up to 6.5 million units. A swell of multifamily home construction drops the gap to 2.3 million homes. But such development is more prevalent in highly populated areas. New home construction in February is down nearly 32% compared to February of 2022, according to HUD while construction of multifamily homes, five or more units in a single structure climbed 14% over the past over the year prior. The lack of housing in, is evident in Pennsylvania, according to a data studied by the Commonwealth Independence Fiscal Office. There were 41,420 new homes listed in March of 2022, with 11,803 sold at a median price of $197,000. Last month, new listings fell year over year to 33,000, 
with 9,744 sales at a median price of $200,000. Completed construction and manufactured home shipments topped 1.5 million units in 2022, the highest total since 2007, said Leonardo Kiefer, Deputy Chief Economist with Freddie Mac. He said that 1968 until 2007, there are only four years where the U.S. ended a year with fewer new home housing units. We're making progress, adding new units and trying to fill a hole that's built up over a decade, but the gap is substantial, Kiefer said. Kiefer said 2023 is trending to be a tough year for home buyers. He said the climate could carry at least into next year, too. A limited supply of homes for sale drove prices high above the rate of inflation, he said, pointing to the estimated $12 trillion in equity homeowners collectively added since 2019. From an affordability perspective, Kiefer said environment is challenging. However, the middle-class America, the environment hasn't evaporated. I don't believe that, Kiefer said, when asked if the market has gone into the middle class and lower middle class. There are challenges, but they are not insurmountable, I believe. To best navigate the existing market, Zinn recommends home buyers seek help from housing counselors. A list of nationally approved agents and a link to a searchable database is available at HUD.gov. Counselors have decided whether help decide whether the timing is right for a prospective buyer to purchase. They discuss short-term and long-term implications. Zinn said they can also help current homeowners avoid delinquencies and repossession. There's aid for down payment assistance, mortgage buy down to lower interest rates, and more. Jung Young Chow, the Senior Research Assist Associate with Urban Institute Housing Finance Policy Center, pointed to down payment resource.com as one option for information. Chow said that there's lower income seek information and government sponsored enterprise loans and programs for first time home buyers. In brief news, here we go. Chictawagan woman admits injuring dog in her car in her care. Pleads guilty to animal cruelty charged Tuesday. Staff reports You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Niagara Gazette on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Your reader is Lori Morose. That's me. Okay, back to our article. Pleads guilty to animal cruelty charged Tuesday. A Lancaster woman is facing a year in jail for pleading guilty to charges related to injuring a dog she was boarding. Andrea L. White, 47, of the town of Lancaster, pleaded guilty before Lancaster Town Court Justice Anthony J. Servi to one court of overdriving, torturing, and injuring animals and failure to provide proper assistance. Class A misdemeanor under the New York State Agriculture and Markets Law. She pleaded guilty to the highest sustainable charge. On July 18th, the victim, the, excuse me, the victim hired white to board his dog at her home on East Home Road in the town of Lancaster. White agreed to care for the dog, a mixed-breed terrier named Nixie, until August 1st, when the victim returned to town and attempted to pick up Nixie. White refused to release the dog to him. On August 5th, the victim again attempted to pick up his dog from White's home. 
She told the victim that his dog had escaped from her vehicle during a collision in the town of Orchard Park. The victim reported the incident to police. The town of Lancaster Police Department obtained a search warrant for White's residence. Investigators found a total of nine dogs inside the home, including Nixie, who was injured. Nixie was taken to the emergency veterinarian's office, where she was treated for a fractured and dislocated left forearm, a laceration on her neck, and missing teeth. White faces a maximum of one year in jail when she is sentenced on August 1st. She remains released on her own recognizance. Erie County District Attorney John Flynn commend, commends the Town of Lancaster Police Department for their work in the investigation. The case was prosecuted by Assistant Director Attorney Mitchell Shokoff and Justice Courts Bureau and Assistant Director Attorney Christine M. Garvey of the Animal Cruelty Unit. My goodness. Okay. And we're going to police reports. In Niagara Falls, there was a shooting. Police are investigating a reported shooting on the 1600 block of Niagara Avenue at 10 p.m. Friday. Officers said they were dispatched from calls to check the welfare and when they heard shots. When officers arrived on the scene, they said multiple witnesses told them they had heard shots from a nearby home when people were having a bonfire on the porch, where people were having a bonfire on the porch. The police said they approached the people on the porch, who they described as uncooperative and heavy, heavily intoxicated. Officers said they found no shell casings or, for, or firearms on the porch. Another shooting. Police investigated a shooting on the 1400 block of Main Street at 5.13 a.m. Saturday. Officers said they were dispatched to report of shots heard. And when they arrived on the scene, they found a small fire burning in the front of a business. Police said the front window of the business had multiple bullet holes. Officers removed 40 spent 40 millimeter shell casings in the front of the business. A witness said they were awakened by the sound of gunshots and saw the bullet holes in the window. Uh, and here's a theft. Officers are looking into a theft that happened on 1800 block of Pine Avenue in Niagara Falls. A, ma a male victim told police that sometime between 11 p.m. Friday and 11 a.m. Saturday, someone removed a catalytic converter from his 20 2005 Chevy Express van. American Airlines. AAA, 42.3 million Americans expected to travel Memorial Day weekend. Air travel set to surpass pre-pandemic numbers are demand for flight soars. AAA is projecting 42.3 million Americans will travel 50 miles or more from home this Memorial Day weekend, a 7% increase from 2022. This year, 2.7 million more people will travel from the unofficial start of summer compared to last year. This is expected to be the third busiest Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day weekend since 2000, when AAA started tracking holiday travel. The world has reopened, and there is a lot of pent-up demand for travel, said Bevy Powell, Senior Vice President of AAA East Central. From unique destinations like Egypt to the always popular beach trips and cruises, more Americans are plan planning those special vacations this summer with family and friends. Nearly 3.4 million travelers are expected to fly their way, their destinations this Memorial Day, an increase of 11% from last year. Air travel over the holiday weekend is projected to exceed pre-pandemic levels, with 170,000 more passengers 
or 5.4% more than 2019. Despite high ticket prices, demand for flights is skyrocketing. This Memorial Day weekend could be the busiest at airports since 2005. Memorial Day road trips are up 6% from last year. More than 37 million Americans will drive to their destinations, an increase of more than 2 million. Gas prices are lower this holiday compared to last year, when the national average was more than $4 a gallon. Despite the lower prices at the pump, car travel this holiday will not will be shy of pre-pandemic numbers by about 500,000 travelers. People more, pe- more people this holiday are also taking other modes of transportation, such as buses and trains. These travelers are expected to total 1.85 million, an increase of 20.6% from 2022. INRICS, a provider of transportation data and insights, expects Friday, May 26th to be the busiest day on the roads during the long Memorial Day weekend. The best times to travel by car are in the morning or evening after 6 p.m. The lightest traffic days was the Saturday and Sunday. Will be Saturday and Sunday. Major metros areas like Boston, New York, Seattle, and Tampa will likely see travel times double compared to normal. AAA booking data for the Memorial Day weekend shows tourist hotspots like Orlando, New York City, and Las Vegas are top domestic destinations. Cruise port cities in Florida and Alaska, as well as Seattle, are high on the list, with a 50% increase in domestic cruise bookings compared to last year. Other popular U.S. cities this Memorial Day include Denver, Boston, Anaheim, and Canton, Ohio, home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Very interesting. Whirlpool Jet Boat Tours Hiring for the Season In 2023, Whirlpool Jet Boat season is officially open, and the company is looking for energetic, outgoing, and adventurous individuals. Whirlpool Jet Boats provide passengers with rides through the Niagara River's whitewater rapids. It's not your average summer job. It gives you the chance to learn new critical skills, embrace adventure, make lifelong friends, and give families lasting memories. And our next article, Home Depot Cuts... Outlook as Americans Cool Spendings on Homes After years of explosive growth during the pandemic, Home Depot's revenue during the first quarter fell short of the expectations and the company cut its profits and sales outlook for the year, sending shares skidding before the opening bell Tuesday. It was a rough start to the busy week of retail earnings and numbers for the nation's biggest home improvement chain dragged down retail stocks as well as the Dow. For the three months... For the three months ended April 30th, revenue dropped to $37.26 billion from last year's $38.91 billion, and it was short of the $38.45 billion projected by analyst polls by Zach's Investment Research. Sales at stores open at least, open at least a year, a key indicator of the Retail is healthier drop of 4.5%, and it dropped 4.6% for the stores in the U.S. After a three-year period of unpredicted growth for our sector, during which we grew sales by over $47 billion, was expected that fiscal 2023 would be a year of modernization for the home improvement market, said CEO Ted Decker. Decker said, 
Weak sales were most likely due to lumber deflation and bad weather, particularly in its western division, which had <clears throat> contended with extreme weather, extreme weather in California. But the Atlanta company cuts its expectations for the year with a shift in spending becomes more clear with the economy slowing and costs rising for builders and homeowners. The U.S. Federal Reserve has hiked benchmark interest rates 10 consecutive times with hopes of slowing the economy and cooling inflation. The U.S. economy showed sharply from, slowed sharply from January through March, decelerating to just 1.1% annual pace as higher interest rates hammered the household housing market and businesses reduced their inventories. An estimate from the Commerce Department last month showed that the nation's gross domestic product, the broadest gauge of economic output, weak-ended our growth at 3.2%. Home Depot cautioned in February that it expected profits to slip this year. The chain saw remarkable growth over the past three years as many people hunkered down at the home or were searching for a new home during the pandemic. Americans spent heavily on home renovations and other projects. With the easing of the pandemic, Americans began to spend on, spend on things that had faded in the years, like dinners out and vacations. Home Depot earned $3.887 billion, or 3.82 per share in the quarter. A year earlier, earned $4.23 billion, or 4.09 per share. That was better than the pre-share earnings of $3.80 that industry analysts were expecting. Another interesting article. This is under the guest view. The title is, Finally Taking Aim at Illegal Cannabis. In another case of Too Little Too Late, Government Kathy Hochul, the state lawmakers enacted 20 pages of new regulations in the state budget to tap to tamp down the thriving gray market in the cannabis and cannabis-related products. Thousands of pop-up weed shops and members-only clubs are flourishing in the absence of legal places to buy cannabis thanks to the glacial rollout of the retail licenses by the state office in the cannabis management and delays in leasing suitable locations by the state. Dormitory Authority. OCM lists eight verified dispensaries in the entire state of New York. Eight in a state of 19 million people. The new law gives OCM the power to seize illegal cannabis and to assess civil penalties up to $20,000 a day against unlicensed, unlicensed cannabis businesses. The State Department of Taxation and Finance is empowered to inspect cannabis retail operations and to fine businesses up to $100,000 if taxes are not being paid. The law makes it a crime to defraud the state of cannabis taxes. If this all sounds like a bureaucratic, indirect way to shut down pop-up weed shops akin to locking up gangsters Al Capone on tax evasion charges, that's by design. Albany to criminalize marijuana and created New York's legal cannabis framework to benefit the people most harmed by the government's war on drugs. Lawmakers are weary of amping up criminal penalties for fear of returning to the bad old days of overpolicing and ma- overpolicing and mass incarceration that this disappropriately affected co- communities of color. 
but the civil fines and penalties are hardly a deterrent to a business raking in millions of dollars in illegal cannabis sales. If the game called Whack-A-Mole, with shops closed down today popping up down the street tomorrow, illegal retailers are taking a bite of legal growing and selling who are playing by the rules. The state is missing out on tax revenues. More importantly, pop-ups are selling products that have not been tested for purity, potency, and toxic addictions, addictives, and may be packaged illegally in the way that, the, that entices young people to partake. Down the road, adult users who are, a company, who are accustomed to cut rate prices from their local pop-up shops may balk at paying for tax products from legal sellers. In a bit of wishful thinking, OCM recently launched a public relations campaign appealing to cannabis buyers, civic duty to support the legal market whenever it opens. Of course, the new law curbing illegal cannabis retailers is only as good as efforts to enforce it. The legalization is silent on how OCM and the Department of Taxation and Finance will staff up to accomplish this new mission. It's also, it also is the product of closed-door negotiations among Hoko, Senator Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, and Assembly Speaker Carl Hesity. There, there were no public hearings, no input from industry people or law enforcement, or from mayors coping with the prolification of illegal weed operations in their cities and residential neighborhoods. Syracuse passed its depth. Excuse me. Its own law in December to rein in legal pot sellers using code enforcement, but gray areas in the law make it hard for police to gray market pot sellers, as staff writer Don Kazarzi reported. From Governor Andrew Cuomo, former government Andrew Cuomo made it an illegal, an art of of legislation policy, though the budget through the budget process. At least he managed to pass budgets on time. Hochul crammed even more policy than usual in this year's budget, including bail reform again, a minimum wage increase, and a ban on natural gas appliances and new constructions. She is over two on meeting the April 1 deadline. <laughs> At bottom, the budget is a lousy way to make public policy. These policies should stand on their own, be debated on their own, and be voted upon on their own. You are listening again to a reading of articles and future, futures, features <laughs> from the Niagara Gazette on Niagara Frontier Radio Reading. Your reader is me, Lori Morose. And our next article in the Opinions, Getting Away With It, by Ed Adams Zek. The Commentary. You are hardened to these things after a while. On Monday, CBS News reported that a man with a metal baseball bat smashed up the Fairfax, Virginia, District Office of Republican Jerry Connolly of Virginia, injuring two workers, one an intern on her first day on the job, and wrecking glass, furniture, and computers in a five-minute rampage before police arrived. The congressman was not in the office at the time, but at a nearby ribbon-cutting ceremony at a food bank. The assailant was arrested. No one died, and an assault fire was not involved. Feeling any outrage, or was it feeling an, any outrage, or was it a sort of a thing that's read on, and here we go again, right? Here's the part of that that bothers me. A food bank requires a ceremony, 
and a member of Congress to open, food banks have become a necessary part of the American landscape, like Nelexin on hand to prevent drug overdoses or skateboard-like synage on highways to warn of possible problems. These days, opening a new one comes opening a new one comes from a celebration. There should be no shame in patronizing a food bank or in having one in the neighborhood, but a happy ribbon-cutting opening seems somehow tasteless and perhaps an admission of failure. You install a food bank because you need a food bank. You don't throw a party over it. It's a minor example of decline on one thing or another in this country, in this world. Blame anyone or anything you like. I like to point to the hippie ethos of the 1960s, which became a green light for society to wear casual, some might say sloppy clothing to church, to symphony concerts, or to supermarket. Blame is easy, even if we disagree or where to place it. If historians have anything left to sit on in 100 years, they may determine that getting away with things become just too easy in the early 21st century. Politicians routinely are indirect for crimes that would have ruined reputations, let alone vote counts just a decade ago. Guilty or not, who would like Republican George Santos, Republican of New York, have lasted for more than 10 10 minutes two generations ago? Again, blame whatever you want, but the lack of accountability in some lines of endeavor is stunning. Perhaps it's merely a pendulum swinging. In my youth, I rarely visited Toronto as a tourist and later read in more than one place that the city's vibe in the 1970s and early 1980s could be compared to of Paris in the 1920s. Art, music, happiness, good, good food, all that in a bustling, clean, and energetic city. And I was a part of it. Then came an era of bad politics, garbage strikes, high real real estate prices, public things broken and not fixed. And these days, I never hear of anyone from Western New York off on an exciting weekend in Toronto. I just checked the website on a prominent Toronto newspaper from an, for any information on how that city is coping and found five stories about the Maple Leafs and one on Josh Allen. We live in a polarizing time, and you do not need to tell me that. Breaking down in order... Break, Breakdowns in order are to be expected these days, from school board meetings to standing in line to enter concerts or other events. Playground equipment sits since unused while other older people use the park to party and perhaps fire off a few rounds. Even a ticket to a Bills game is less about football and more about renting a small amount of space to misbehave. Where, where, whenever I am told modern, modern nation is all things. I reply, including modernation. But we all have decided on an all-purpose demand for treatment. Getting away with it is the end of the game. Perhaps, like many things, it's simply all more out in the open now. Rules, rules, manners, and judgment are simply the glossy top of an imperfect, imperfect system created by imperfect people. You might wonder how the House of Windsor obtained so much power in Britain a few dozen generations ago. One clan vanquished over another clan, and that's why the winner's descendants gets to wear a five-pound crown. He looks ridiculous in it, 
but that's why he wears it. Moving on. This year's law enforcement tug-of-war goes to Canada, an annual event held Saturday on the Rainbow Bridge. This year's law enforcement tug-of-war between the United States and Canada took place on the Rainbow Bridge Saturday. Team Canada compromised of comprised of members from the Niagara Regional Police Service and Team USA comprised of law enforcement members from across Niagara County, including the Niagara Falls Police Department, Niagara County Sheriff's Office, and Niagara County District Attorney's Office, marched out toward the international border of the Rainbow Bridge for a rival but friendly match of tug-of-war. It is the best two or three poles in the best of two or three pole teams made up of men and women... Hang on. Team Canada was ultimately victorious. For the women, Team Canada won 2-0. and For the men, Team Canada won 2-1. The tug-of-war competition concedes with the National Police Week aimed giving thanks to law enforcement officers across the country and remembering those who had made the ultimate sacrifice and service to their community, including Niagara Falls Police Department's very own Christina Zell. Okay, moving along. A LaSalle Prep School robotics team takes part in the challenge. Top 20 ranks for LaSalle robotics team at the World Championships. Call in the Olympics of the robotics. Four LaSalle Prep School robotics team traveled to Dallas on April 28th for the VEX IQ World Robotics Championship. They returned to the Niagara Falls City School District a few days later with all four teams ranked in the top 20 on the planet. The LaSalle students competed against 800 teams from 40 countries with approximately 6,500 individual competitors at Worlds. The students started their journey to global dominance by investing significant time in LaSalle Prep STM Robotics Classroom. After hours of practicing during lunch, before and after school, and over school vacations, the students won several local and state com competitions to qualify for the Worlds. It's fun to see Niagara Falls show the world what we can do, said robotics coach Michael McGrath. Ours is a world-class program. At the competition, the students drove their robots. Then they set them up to navigate a complex field. All four LaSalle prep teams made the top 20 in their respective divisions, qualifying them to compete against 800 teams from all over the globe, chosen from 6,500 robots in the competition at the middle school level. Here are the results. The Prestige, Ryan Brady, Ian Obu, Michaela Purse ranked 18th out of 80 teams in the research division for all qualifying matches before the finals, tied for third best in the world after the finals, third highest score in the division, and the 50th highest score in the entire event with over 4,400 matches completed. Finished highest among all, LaSalle Robotics Team. The Robo Revenge Division. Aiden Chass, Michael Mettler, and Brody Kennedy ranked 10th out of 80 in the Spirit Division after all qualifying matches before the finals. Finished the finals in 6th place in the world. Next division is the Two Stooges, Kyle Dean and Dominic Condio, ranked 11th out of 80 in the individual division, placed 9th in the finals, 5th highest score in their division. And the last division is the French Toast Mafia, 
Annie Copeland, Lalila Mazurik, ranked first out of the 80 in the, the design division after all qualifying matches before the finals. 16th highest over the entire event over 4,400 4, matches, finished 6th in their division, ranked 100th in skills out of the 800, the highest average score in their division, won the Amaze Award, the most prestigious award at the World Robotics Championship. The Amaze Award is pre presented to the team building the highest scoring competitive robot. The district's robotic program has, has expanded to include Niagara Falls High School, with a goal of creating six new teams in 2023-2024 school year. We're going to move forward to an interesting topic by Ricky Armstrong Sr. Title is, The Seneca Nation Seeks Fair Gaming Compact. The Seneca Nation is encouraging the public to voice its support for the nation's effort to secure a fair and equitable gaming compact with New York State. Community support events will be held through May, where the public can sign letters encouraging New York leaders to come to an agreement with the, nations, with the nation that ensures the continued operation of the nation's three casinos properties in western New York, the Seneca Niagara Resort, the Casino in Niagara Falls, the Seneca Allegheny Resort Casino in Salamanca, and the Seneca Buffalo Creek Casino in downtown Buffalo. The nation's current gaming compact is set to expire in December. Now that the state leaders have completed their work on the state budget, no other issues could be more important and more impactful, especially here in western New York, than finishing honest negotiations on the fair and equitable compact with the Seneca Nation. Tens of thousands of individuals, families, and business, businesses locally and across the state depend on our gaming business for their livelihoods. The economic and human impact and benefits of the Seneca Nation's gaming enterprise reach far and wide. The people of our region understand and appreciate what the Seneca Nation means to Western New York. We are asking our neighbors and our guests to let New York officials know that they support us. The public is encouraged to visit the standwithseneca.com where they can sign an online petition. The support letter letters and the petition will be delivered to the state officials in Albany at a future date. Since signing the compact in 2002, the Seneca Nation has made $2 billion in private investments to develop the three operated, operate, to operate the three casinos. Today, the three casino property, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Today, the three casino properties employ approximately 3,000 people, making Seneca Gaming Corporation one of the largest private employers in western New York. Between its casinos, other business enterprises, and its government operations, the Seneca Nation is responsible for more than 5,000 direct jobs and spends nearly $600 million, annual, million dollars annually with 6,000 vendors, supporting throughout thousands of additional jobs. In all, the nation delivers an annual economic impact of more than $1.1 billion to the western New York economy. Beyond the nation's track record of historic private investments and job creation, revenues from nation-owned businesses fund important services and programs for the Seneca people, including housing, health care, ed education, and infrastructure. The nation has been engaged with New York officials and new gaming compact for several months. 
The New York State Legislature is scheduled to complete its legislative session on June 8th. We have seen we have seen every day for the past 20 years the important difference our nation businesses have in our lives and our employees and partners in the lives of the Seneca people in our neighboring communities and across our entire region. We want to see our positive impact continue well into the future. A fair and equitable gaming compact is a key driver for that to happen. That was by Ricky Armstrong Sr. is the president of the Seneca Nation of Indians. And you are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Niagara Gazette on the Niagara Radio Reading Center. This is Lori Morose. Moving on to an in-brief by the Associated Press. Numbers of migrants fell 50% of a border. A number of immigrants encountered at the southern border fell 50% during the last three days, compared with the days leading up to the end of the key pandemic-era regulation, U.S. officials said Monday. But a high number of migrants are still in the U.S. custody, although the number has fallen significantly since last week, says Blas Nunzio Neto, Associated Secretary for Border and Immigration Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. The ability of the U.S. Border Patrol to hold migrants has been a key concern as more migrants come to the border in the days leading up to the end of the immigration restrictions linked to the pandemic, referred to as Title 44. The administration is facing a lawsuit aimed at curtailing its ability to release migrants from custody even when facilities are over capacity. At one point last week, more than 27,000 migrants were in custody along the border, a number that may top 45,000 by the end of May. If the powers to more quickly release migrants from custody when facilities are over capacity are curtailed, said Matthew Hodek, Deputy Border Patrol Chief, in a court filing lawsuit related to the lawsuit. I'm sorry. In a court file filed last, last week, according to the lawsuit. Nunzio Neto said border officials had been encountering a l- little less than 5,000 people a day since Title 42 expired at midnight. Thursday, a new U.S. enforcement measures went into effect Friday. He did not give exact numbers. It's still too early to draw firm conclusions. We are closely watching what's happening. We are confident that the plan that we have developed across the U.S. government to address these flows with work over time, said Nunzio Neto. He credited the U.S. planning as well as enforcement measure Mexico and Guatemala have carried out in the recent days along their own southern borders. He gave no details about what those two countries were doing. The head of the U.S. Border Patrol, Raul Ortiz, Ortiz, said twit on Twitter Monday that his agents apprehended 14,752 people over the past 72 hours. That averages out 4,917 per day. Okay. Here's another article written by Matthew Perrone. Vending machines lasting tool for fighting opioid overdoses. Washington vending machines have long been stocked with snacks, are getting repurposed to distribute life-saving supplies to help fight an opioid epidemic. The growing number of 
cities and local governments are making so-called harm reduction items, including the overdose reversal drug Naloxin, available for free via machines. Interest in the approach is expected to grow over U.S. regulators recently approved Narcan, the leading naloxon drug, to be sold without a prescription. That switch also allows a nasal spray to be stocked in convenience stores, supermarkets, and vending machines. Machine supplier Schaefer Distributing, Distributing, which also sells arcade games and pitball machines, is one of the companies that has worked on with the U.S. communities to put the medication in machines even before FDA's overall counter-approval. Marty Turner, the, Colum- the Columbus, Ohio company's director of vending sales, explains that many other items for promoting public health can be stocked and distributed this way. The interview has been edited for lengthy and clarity. The question. How do these machines work, and what types of items do they dispense? Answer. It's a basic vending machine that we've modified to dispense a product that health departments, harm reduction groups, or other nonprofits are looking to get in their neighborhoods. We've worked on machines that dispense Narcan nasal spray, fentanyl strips, HIV testing kits, prescription disposable bags, and even some first aid kits and safe sex kits. Really anything that they're looking to go into the hands of the public. Question, how many have you sold? Answer, we probably sold close to 200 or more machines <coughs> to harm reduction communities. To harm reduction communi- communities. They put them everywhere from public libraries to city hall. They, they're, they're, yeah, sorry. There have been a couple delivered to post office, college campuses, sheriff's office, almost anywhere that you would have 24-hour public access. Question. What's the advantage of using a vending machine for this effort? Answer. The vending machine just gives the end user the opportunity to walk up without being judged or having have any money to purchase the product. And in the case of Narcan, where is it now? an over-the-counter drug. We feel that the vending machines are going to be just as popular and in demand because your next-door neighbor might not want to walk into Walgreens and have you stand in line behind him wondering, okay, why is this guy buying Narcan? It's that kind that takes away the stigma and offers 24-7 access. Question. How much do these machines cost? Answer. The Naxanin machines sell from anywhere from $4,500 to $7,400 for outdoor machines. The outdoor machines is resistant to the rain and it has com- compressors so that it can maintain its temperature in the summer that's, that's safe for the product. Question. Do users ever have to enter any personal information or other details when using the machine? The answer. What we found is that the more information you're asking on the end user, for example, if you're asking whether they're male or female or their zip code or their age, they're less likely to get the product. We are working primarily with the folks that are looking for a low barrier. They just like to walk up to the machine, press the selection button, and get the product. That just seems to be the best opportunity to get these into the hands of people who need them the most. All right. Are Americans holding on to vehicles longer than ever? Written by Tom Krishner.
Ann Arbor, Michigan. With new and used cars still painfully expensive, Ryan Holdsworth says he plans to keep his 9-year-old Chevy Cruze for at least four more years. Limiting his car payments and his overall debt is a bigger priority for him than having a new vehicle. A 35-year-old grocery store worker from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Holdsworth would probably be in the market for a vehicle within a few years, if not for the high cost. For now, it's out of the question. You're not going to get one for the price you can afford, he said. Holdsworth has plenty of company. Americans are keeping their cars longer than ever. The average age of a passenger vehicle on the road hit a record 12.5 years this year, according to the data gathered by S&P Global Mobility. Sedans like Holdsworth's are even older on average, 13.6 years. Blame it mainly on the pandemic, which in 2020 triggered a global shortage of automobile computer chips. The vital component that runs everything from radios to gas pedals to transmissions. The shortage drastically slowed down global assembly lines, making new vehicles scarce in dealer lots just just where customers were increasingly eager to buy. Prices reached record highs, and though they eased somewhat, the cost of vehicles still feels punishingly expensive to many Americans, especially when coupled with how much higher loans rates are. Since the pandemic struck three years ago, the average new vehicle has rocketed 24% to nearly $48,000 as of April, according to Edmunds.com. Typical loan rates on new cars purchased are ballooned to 7%, ballooned to 7% in a consecutive Federal Reserve aggressive streak of interest rates, rate hikes to fight inflation. It's all pushed the national average monthly auto loan payment to $729. Wow. Preferably high as many. Experts say a family earning the median U.S. household income can no longer afford the average new car payment and still cover such necessities as housing, food, and utilities. Used vehicle prices on average has surged even more since the pandemic hit, up 40% to nearly $29,000. With an average loan rate increasing to 11%, the typically the typical monthly used payment is now $563. Faced with deciding between making a jumbo payment and keeping their existing vehicles, more owners are choosing to stick with what they have, even if it means spending more in, on repairs and maintenance. Auto mechanics have been s- struck by rising ages and mileages on vehicles that now arrive at the shop in numbers they've never seen before. You see cars all the time here with 250,000, 300,000 miles, said Jay Number, owner of a Japanese auto professional service, a repair garage nearly near downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. They have been really major, having major work on anything. They've just been doing the service, the routine service. It doesn't mean that the most owners or, or of older vehicles are necessarily stuck with constant repair bills. One reason people can hold their vehicles for increasingly long periods and that auto manufacturers have improved over time. Engines run longer. Bodies don't rust as quickly. Components last longer. Yet the cost of buying either a new or old used vehicle is leaving more people with essentially no choice but to keep the one they have. The repair versus buy equation changed, said Todd Camperu, an associated director of S&P. 
Even with the rising repair costs, Campanu said it's still typically more cost-effective to fix an older vehicle than spring for a new purchase. And I want to thank you for listening. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from the current issues of the Niagara Gazette. We read from the Niagara Gazette every Saturday at 11 a.m. Your reader has been me, Lori Morose, and I want to thank you for listening and have a great day.